everyone. Welcome to episode 81 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are back together after, like, what, months apart is what it feels yeah. like. It feels like we've had summer vacation and we didn't get to see each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, weird. we've been out from school for three months and it meant we both went to separate camps or something. It's so sad. And we've been places, which yeah. is exciting, but not together. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So it is almost like back to school happiness here. Yes. We're, yeah. we're giddy with excitement. We gave each other the biggest hugs and, you know, we're just happy to be sitting in our normal chairs and ready to have a fun conversation about bookish things. Absolutely. Yes. We've got our stacks of books ready to roll. We are ready. Before we get started in our regular segments, we just want to give a very big thank you shout out to our friend Lisa, who's a new Patreon subscriber. Thank you, Lisa. Or donor. I don't know the best way to say that. Thank you so much, Lisa. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Thank you. Currently reading. Let's jump right in. Yeah. I just started just this morning reading The Dutch House by Ann Patchett. This is a book I picked up at Expo. It releases September 24th. I literally just opened it. I have been carting it with me (laughs) to multiple locations, but have been busy. So haven't started it. I really don't have much to say, except it's got a pretty cool cover. And it's Ann Patchett. What else do you need to say? Weekend booked. Yes. Yes. I cannot wait to just read all weekend, actually. Nice. Well, I have jumped into Middlemarch. I'm so excited. Middlemarch is by George Eliot. It is a big chunkster. I would say. The copy that I have, what is it, 899 pages? Granted, there is a short afterward. 890 pages, and I'm on page 256 right now. I set a goal to read like 50 pages a day for 17 days, and it's going really well so far, I have to say. We are in the midst of moving and packing, and I thought this might not appear to be the best time to read it, but in other ways it is because it's just like 50 pages a day, boom, don't think. Yeah. Just read. I read a little bit in the morning, a little bit in the evening. Our friend Tony has joined me in a buddy read of this. So oh, we're using Voxer with that. And one of my friends, Martha, on Facebook, who I worked at Borders with, she's reading it now too. So it's kind of fun to have some folks who are currently reading it to chat about as I go along. That's great. And, you know, Chris and I, I think we've mentioned this on the podcast, we both get kind of cranky if we don't get to read every day. Yeah. I mean, it's not pretty. Mm -mm. So I think it's good that, you know, with this big move you have going on that you have set yourself this goal so that Laura doesn't have to deal with the crankster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's not pretty. Like, I could go a day, but give me two days without reading and it's just... Because it's I self-soothe that way. Exactly. It's like our blankies. Totally. (laughs) All right. Moving on to Just Red. Yes. So it's been a while. Why don't you start off? What have you just read recently? Right. So we, you know, we haven't had a regular episode in quite some time. So I have five books that I'm going to talk about. Don't fear, everyone. Put your pens down. Remember that we put all of this information in the show notes. You can get it there. And I don't think I'll go into great detail on all of them, just because that's a lot of books. I traveled quite a bit and got to have some good plane reading and car reading and things. So I read The Butterfly Girl by Renee Denfeld. This book comes out in October. It's considered the number two in the series. Um, The first book was The Child Finder, which I also read and talked about many episodes ago. I think it came out last year. And it's about the protagonist, Naomi Cottle, who finds lost people. 
lots of times, sadly, they may be passed away, Mm -hmm. but she searches for lost people, and she also has some mysterious things in her own background where she's looking for her lost sister. And that comes to the forefront in this book. That was addressed in The Child Finder, but in The Butterfly Girl, that really comes to the forefront. Okay. Um, Renee Denfeld is a fantastic writer. Her This is her third novel. The other one is called Ella Enchanted. No, that's a, that's the Disney movie, I think. No, it's called just The Enchanted. The Enchanted, okay. Which sounds kind of like a Disney movie, which is why I always say that. That's such a good book. So okay. if you can't wait or if you get annoyed by the fact that I'm talking about a book that doesn't come out until October, check out either Enchanted or The Child Finder. And um, there is a blurb by Margaret Atwood about the Butterfly Girl where she says, it's heartbreaking, finger-gnawing, yet ultimately a hopeful novel. And I think that really does sum it up well. Nice. So again, the Butterfly Girl, Renee Denfeld. All right. Well, one of the books I read, I'm going to talk about three today. This one, first up, is A Well-Read Woman, The Life, Loves, and Legacy of Ruth Rappaport. It's by Kate Stewart. This is a biography of Ruth Rappaport, who was a librarian at the Library of Congress is where she ended up, where she ended her career, I should say. Amazing life this woman lived. She was born in 1923 in Germany. She's Jewish. Her family is Jewish. She witnessed the rise of Nazism. She escaped as a teenager to Switzerland, was there alone while she was trying to get passage to the United States, which she eventually did. She immigrated alone, lived with an aunt and uncle in the Seattle area, and Mm. her parents, she didn't know a lot of what was going on with them. She finishes school. She gets involved in a lot of Zionist organizations, eventually lives in Israel for a while while the country's being formed. She kind of grows into the profession of becoming a librarian. I don't want to give away all the details or anything, but she ends up opening military libraries in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Wow. Yeah. Um, And she spends over seven years in Vietnam as a librarian getting reading materials to the men in the fields Fascinating. Um, and I, af- I never knew there was such a thing. Did you know that? Oh, yeah, military libraries. Every mm-hmm. Pretty much every base has a military library. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I mean, since World War One, there were book drives to get books to the troops mm-hmm. and, and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I've heard of yeah. that. I just didn't realize that there were actual libraries. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. I mean, because there's a little bit, too, of possibly some CIA covert money, not necessarily money laundering, but maybe information gathering, too, happening through the libraries. Hmm. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) That is something I want to look into a little bit more. Um, But then after over seven years in Vietnam, Ruth decides she wants to get out of there, and she secures a position at the Library of Congress where one of her first assignments was working with this really kind of mysterious, almost secretive collection of erotica, a lot of the materials of which were confiscated by the FBI, and it wasn't cataloged in the way that other things at the Library of Congress were cataloged. So intriguing. The thing, Kate Stewart, this is her first book, and I felt like she showed really great restraint writing about this woman's life because it was so exciting and so different. And I felt like if had I written this, it had been full of the literary equivalents of OMGs everywhere. Like, <laughs> can you believe this? I'm, 
Um, really enjoyed it. And a little fun fact, too, is Kate Stewart is Anne Boyd Rue's cousin. Oh, right. She wrote Amy, Joe, Beth. Wait, how does that go? Meg, Joe, Amy, Beth, The Story of Little Women, Why It Still Matters. A Well-Read Woman by Kate Stewart. It's really a great read for librarians, I think, would love this. Because interwoven throughout what's going on in Ruth's life is what's going on in the world in general, obviously the Holocaust in Germany, in the United States, the rise of McCarthyism, at the Library of Congress, the problems with racism that they've had, and a lot of really interesting things. I highly recommend it. It sounds great. Yeah. Well, I also read Never Have I Ever by Jocelyn Jackson. This book comes out on July 30th, so just around the corner. Jocelyn Jackson, we met her at Book Expo. I was really thrilled to meet her. I've been reading her writing for years. She's a Southern fiction writer. And this book is a little bit different than her others. Um, When I talked to her, she said she was excited to write something a little different, just that it has a dark turn in it, Mm -hmm. a little bit darker than her books. I mean, she's had books where... Dead bodies have been exhumed in backyards. That's kind of dark, so I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) and she also frequently writes about mother-daughter relationships. Mm -hmm. And this one has a stepdaughter and a mother relationship that's really sweet in it. The protagonist is Amy, and she had a tragic car accident as a youth that's really formed who she became and is largely something that she's hidden from the family that she's now a part of. And that comes to the fore in this book. And it's very interesting. I really enjoyed it. There is a very dark turn at the end, which I'm not going to spoil, that I would just would love to talk to somebody who's read it. But um, anyway, I think it's a great summer read. I got completely lost in this book. I was reading it on the beach in Portugal. Nice. Not hard work. Um, and it was a page turner. It really was. Cool. All right. Next up, I read a book. It's a novel that's coming out in August. August 6th, this one comes out. It's called The Hotel Never Sink. It's by Adam O'Fallon Price. This is a novel about a family that ends up owning this hotel. It's not a hotel to start with. It's a struggling, poor family, uh, another Jewish family in Silesia, which is actually where one of my grandfathers is from, that part of Germany slash Poland. It's one of those areas that's gone back and forth depending on who's in power. So it's a this young family. It's a dad, uh, a brother, and a sister, a mom. They come over to the United States poor. They're working hard. Long story short, he ends up with this huge building that he turns into a hotel. And the hotel is going strong for a long time, and then a young boy goes missing. Mm. And then other children go missing. And the story, I think, ends maybe in the 90s. I'm not sure. So it's almost like this whole century hmm. of the hotel's history. And it's told in chapters from different characters' perspectives. There are 16, well, 15 different characters. The last chapter is called Ensemble. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Oh, which is actually, it's dated 2012. So it does go even further than the 90s. I enjoyed it. I I think um, one of the problems I had with it is that there's a blurb on the cover saying, not since Stephen King's Overlook has a hotel hiding a secret been brought to such vivid life. 
Mm. So I don't know. Like anytime you mention The Shining, yeah, that's loaded for me because it's yeah. one of my favorite novels. So I think that set me up for having some kind of expectations that were not part of this book's mission necessarily. Yeah. But I, I did enjoy it. I kept reading. I would recommend it if you like books about old, not necessarily abandoned buildings, but old buildings and family and generations. I didn't like every character's voice in this. But it was never boring. Okay. Put it that. Yeah. And I, I'm not one who has to, quote, like characters, but some of them were a little bit like, like oh, okay. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. The Hotel Never Sank, Adam O'Fallon Price, comes out October 6th from Tin House Books. Uh, you know, it's funny. I went on a an unexpected trip to Michigan, which I'll talk about in Biblio Adventures, and the we stayed at this kind of older 70s style resort hotel and Jim kept saying this reminds me of The Shining (laughs) and I thought I'm really glad I didn't read that book or watch the movie because I don't want to be freaked out Uh, about the hotel I'm staying at. Yeah The Shining is awesome like I read the first time when I was a teenager and I really loved it and then I read it when I was in my 40s and I loved it again for different reasons like Mm. it's one of those novels that depending on what your age is you get different things out of it. So as a teenager, like, it was about the angry dad kind of situation. And then in my 40s, it was, I equated it to what corporate America expects out of their employees. That, you know, it sucks them dry and to hell with your family. And so, I don't know. It's a great novel. But does it make you never want to stay in a hotel again? Oh, no. Okay. I mean, I will always think, though, of certain things. Like, anytime I'm walking down a big hotel hallway... And you see that long view. Like, yeah. you can't help but you think about The Shining if you've seen the movie. Yeah, well, that's why yeah. I don't. <laughs> I mean, the movie I remember thinking was okay. I think I've watched it two or three times. Mm-hmm. I don't think Stephen King liked the movie too much. Oh, interesting. From what I remember. Hmm. But I didn't think it was a total, like, bad adaptation. Mm-hmm. They just changed some things. Well, my next book was City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert, which is oh, cool. out. You love that. Yes, nice. I did. I had the funniest experience with this book. So I had been trying to get it as an arc for a year mm-hmm. to no avail. Thanks, nobody. But anyway, <laughs> so then I, right before I left on my trip, I thought, oh, why didn't I request this from the library months ago? It's Elizabeth Gilbert. I'm sure they've had it in the system forever. Well, I go on. One of the libraries that I use, yes, I use several <laughs> library systems, doesn't even have it. So weird. I recommended it. Isn't yeah. that weird? That I is mean, this weird. was the week before this book was supposed to come out. So I recommended it, and there I am on my trip. And when you recommend a book, they automatically put you in the queue. Yeah. I get it. I That's get the awesome. e-version of it. I know. So on my long flight home, I had Elizabeth Gilbert's new book. I couldn't believe it. My, you know, someone was looking See, it was out for me. To be. I know. Yeah. And this is, you know, the one of the things I admire about authors is when they write books that are very different each time. And mm-hmm. I think Elizabeth Gilbert is really has really done that, both fiction and nonfiction. This book takes place in the theater world of the 1940s in New York City. Cool. So it's a real love letter to New York and theater in general. 
I wouldn't say that it's my favorite Elizabeth Gilbert book, but I definitely, for a flight home and then my first couple days home, it was the perfect read. It wasn't hard work. And um, another tie to Connecticut, it seems like since I've moved here, so many books have a thread that have to do with Connecticut because this is about a young woman, Vivian, whose family is from Connecticut. The book opens, and she has been booted out of Vassar. She wasn't doing very well there. She wasn't taking it seriously. She goes back home to her family in Connecticut, doesn't want to be there, and ends up with her aunt Peg in New York City, who works as a theater director at a barely-making-it theater company in New York City in the 1940s. It's rich with characters. There's a lot of partying and sex and theater, you know, shows. And it was a, it was a lot of fun. And she's, Elizabeth Gilbert's, you know, on a tour. You can see her if you would check her tour schedule. But I've also just listened to some interviews with her. And she had a pretty famous breakup from the man that she talks about in Eat, Pray, Love. And she got into a relationship with a woman who was dying of, I want to say, liver cancer, or one of the pretty nasty forms of cancer, and passed away. And City of Girls was the book she stepped into writing after her partner's death. Okay. And so she talks about how it was total escapism for her to step into this world and to write about it. Yeah. And the book reads that way. And so if you're looking for a fun escape and you love reading books that take place in New York City like I do... I would recommend this one, City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert. So should I go one? Yeah, I have, go, I have one more, it. and then we both read the same one, which we is did. fun. The other book I read, this one I read on my Michigan vacation, which we drove, and so it was a book I read a lot in the car. It's called Evie Drake Starts Over by Linda Holmes. Hmm. Debut novel, just came out a few weeks ago. It takes place in Maine, which I loved. And it's definitely a beach read, sort of summer read, I think. It's getting a lot of press because Linda Holmes is the one of the hosts of Pop Culture Happy Hour Mm -hmm. podcast. I think she does a lot of, you know, essay sort of writing and pretty famous arenas. Okay. The premise of it is a young woman who's in a marriage with a husband who's the doctor in a small town that everybody loves, but behind the scenes and behind their closed doors, not such a great husband. He dies unexpectedly, and so she kind of has to start her life over. She doesn't get out much because she works out of her house Mm -hmm. and into town and into her home in the apartment in the back moves a very famous baseball pitcher who can no longer pitch a ball. Oh, boy. So he escapes and flees out of, I think he pitches for the Yankees or some, you know, New York City team, and um, moves in with her. All right. Does she help him get his arm back? Or is that a Amongst other things. Um, It's definitely, you know, a love story. It's a small town story. It's a main story. Um, There's a little bit of food in it. It was an easy, fun vacation read. It's not, as soon as I closed it, I couldn't remember what it was about. It was one of those kind of books for me, you know, but. um, How did that cross your path, that book? Do you remember? I think I saw it at the library because I got it out. I think it was in the seven-day reads in the library, which was perfect for my trip. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I might have. Oh, no. I know how I heard about it. 
Michael Kindness. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. From Books on the Nightstand. That's right. On social media. He talked All about right. it and was really excited about it. And then I went to the library and there it was. Cool. I couldn't believe it. So right. I took it out. That's right. Nice. That's hard. Thank you, Michael. Just curious. Because, you know, yeah. debut author sometimes. Yeah. It's like, how do they get on radar? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It was Michael. Cool. Yeah. Yay, Michael. And then we had an unexpected joint read. We did, and probably no surprise to longtime listeners that we both jumped at the chance to read advanced reader copies of Bianca Murray's new novel, If You Want to Make God Laugh, which is out now. It just came out this week. She's on tour. Check out her website to see if she's coming to a town near you. I know she was just in Chicago last night. Some of our Booktopia friends were there to see her. And we'll be seeing her next week in Connecticut and Middletown. More more to come about that later. But anyway, if you want to make God laugh, another fantastic novel from Bianca. We both really loved her first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words. And I have to say, there's no whiff of a sophomore slump in this second novel. It is so strong. It was such a joy to read. Yeah, I loved it. As a matter of fact, I have to say that I woke up one morning, which is my very productive reading time, and I had 30 pages left in the book, and I was, I wanted to cry. It was like, I don't, maybe I won't read it, you know? <laughs> like, I really didn't want it to end, yeah. and I haven't read a book like that in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. It's, it's about two white, middle-aged women who are sisters who've been estranged, and then a young black woman whose life becomes entwined with theirs they all become entwined because of certain situations from their past and their present just one of those novels that i feel like it doesn't shy away from the hard things of life the pain of loss and illness and homophobia and racism but it it left me with such a sense of hope Mm -hmm. for the future and that people can change and people can move forward even in the most horrendous of circumstances. Yeah, it's true. Bianca is originally from South Africa. This book takes place in South Africa, as did Hum, if you don't know the words. It also is similar to her first book in that it's a different character point of view each chapter, which I really have an affinity for. Yeah. And so it's through these three characters that rotates through the three of their perspectives and stuff, which is fascinating because it's so much fun to see what they think of each other, right. and how they interpret situations yes. based on their own assumptions and experience and stereotypes and whatnot. And how we keep secrets from people. Yeah. And how those secrets affect us. Yeah. Yeah. And how sometimes we think we're keeping secrets, but it's like blatantly all over the place. Right. Yeah. <laughs> in some that ways. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. There's also a really nice dog in the book. Yes. Yeah. Jezebel. Jezebel. It was beautifully written and really a story that just kept my attention the entire way through. It really did. Mine as well. And I I have to say, you know, there's the issue of one of the character is, uh, rape is a a common thread in this Mm. book between these characters. And one of the characters is raped for having lesbian desire. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, and I I wrote a review on my blog about it, but I really just commend Bianca for writing about that in a sustained way Mm. in this novel because it's not something that people talk about a lot. It's something that's happened and it continues to happen now. I just really appreciated that being something that is brought to light. Yeah. I mean, I think that you summed it up well when you said that she takes heavy 
and hard topics and doesn't shy away from bringing the reader all the way through and really experiencing it along with the character, yeah. you know. But not in a heavy-handed way at all. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. it's not heavy-handed. It's not dismissive. Yeah. She lets the reader fill in what they need to fill in. And what's fascinating to me is when I was reading this, now I've never been to South Africa, Mm-mm. but I felt like there were, I could picture something so vividly. Mm. Like there's a scene where somebody's car breaks down outside of the, the squatter village. And like I could just picture it so mm-hmm. vividly. It was amazing. Yeah, she doesn't get bogged down in details, not which is all. not something that I can read, you yeah. know? So, yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. And yeah. this is no lightweight book. Like, it is, how many pages was it? It was, well, it's 435 Yeah, with her afterwards. It wasn't long enough, in my opinion. I know. I didn't it want it to end. And, and um, I'm hopeful, although she, I don't think she has confirmed this, but I think her third book might be a follow-up to Hum If You Don't Know the Words. Nice. I think yeah. we might see some of those characters again. Those characters too. Yeah. Great. So, if you want to make God laugh, by Bianca Murray is out now. We highly recommend it. Yes, double thumbs up. Biblio Adventures. We yeah. both went on some serious adventures. <laughs> yeah, we did. We've been places, as they say. <laughs> yeah, total, total book euphoria. Book euphoria. Well, for you especially, Chris, should we oh. begin with Chris's? Yeah, I mean, what can I say? I was in Catherland. Not that I went to Red Cloud, Nebraska, but I went to the 17th International Willa Cather Seminar, which was held in Winchester, Virginia this year which is near where she was born and spent the first nine years of her life. This international seminar that they do, they do it every other year. There is an annual seminar, or I should say an annual conference that happens in Red Cloud, Nebraska, which is where Cather is from. This one takes place every two years in different parts of the country or the world. It was fantastic. I was so happy I went. I wasn't sure about submitting a paper because it's been like 20 years since I've given a paper at an academic conference and I reached out to the organizer and asked and she's like I said I'm asking for a friend wink you know <laughs> you know I got the thumbs up and I did it and the paper got accepted and I was so excited and worked really hard on my paper had a great time delivering it and we had I think really good conversation afterwards and I saw tons of fantastic papers mm. I didn't see one paper that was a bomb At this conference. And it was a week-long conference. So Monday through Friday. Technically started Sunday night to Saturday morning, but papers were given on four of those days. There were a couple undergraduates there, graduate students, and and really well-known, influential Cather scholars and literary scholars there as well. A lot of diversity in that regard. And then we went on field trips every day, which is fantastic. So the home that Cather lived in, which is technically her grandparents' home, was called Willow Shade. And I'd seen it before on a trip down there, but it's a private residence. So I'd never been inside. The family who currently lives there opened it up to seminar attendees to come and tour the house. That's really cool. They let us come in and walk around and poke into everything. And they had cookies and beverages for us that was so neat to see i think i mentioned it on our Safir and the slave girl episode that you know there's that scene at the end of the novel where the the narrator is waiting for nancy to come right and you know you can you stand in the room where little willa cather actually was waiting for nancy to come back wow. and then that she wrote about in the novel so that was really cool 
We went to uh, Cape on Springs, which is the resort that's mentioned in Saphir and the Slave Girl. On Wednesday, that was the big old field trip to the National Museum of African American History and Culture, mm. which was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I'd like they, to go there. They said that they designed it so that you couldn't do it in a day, and you just can't do that in a day. Yeah. It is a huge museum, and I was blown away by it. It's one of the best museums I've ever been in. You start by going down into this huge elevator. They take you down, and you start with slaves being captured in Africa mm. and the, the beginnings of that slave trade. And there are three floors that take you up through that experience, and then you come out into the beginning of the United States. Mm. And one of the powerful exhibits was a statue of Thomas Jefferson standing and behind him is this partially formed brick wall with over 900 bricks and each brick represents one of the slaves he owned and there are some names on some of the bricks of the slaves that they knew and then it it goes into there with the history of slavery in more modern United States history and then it ends with Barack Obama Hmm. it's amazing Hmm. they have so many items to look at and great plaques to read too it's not overwhelming with the writing you can definitely spend a lot of time reading everything about every item if you wanted to Mm -hmm. it was challenging though because it was so crowded yeah but fantastic fantastic Mm. museum and then upstairs there are even more displays about like say music or sports uh writers things like that Hmm. fantastic place the conference experience was fantastic I also went to the independent bookstore in town, the Winchester Book Gallery, which Mm. is a nice bookstore in town. They recently moved, I guess, because there's this like two or three blocks of downtown Winchester, which is closed traffic. Oh, fun. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's full of restaurants and really cool shops and everything. So that was fun. And then on Saturday before I left town, I went to the Handley Memorial Library in town, which is gorgeous. Mm. I did write a blog post about that. I'll, Emily, if you don't mind putting a link yeah, to that, because it's notes. such a beautiful library. Yeah. So that was. I'll put a link to both um, Chris's review of If You Want to Make God Laugh and to the um, to that library. To library. Yeah, yeah, beautiful library. So what else can I say? I mean, it's Winchester itself is a really cool town. Hmm. I When I'd been in Virginia before, I was kind of just passing through, and we stopped in Back Creek, which is the area where Cather actually was born. It's now called Gore. But Winchester is the nearby big bigger town slash city. I would totally go there on vacation. Oh, that's it's great. such a neat area. Yeah. Well yeah. congratulations. I as your book cougar co host am so proud of you. Well thank you so much. <laughs> so much fun. I'm totally hooked. I made some some new friends. I connected with some old friends there. Great. Which was great. And the next international Willa Cather seminar will be in 2021. Mm-hmm. It's going to be in New York. Oh, easy. At the new school. Yeah, oh, so, perfect. Yeah, I'll definitely be going Start to Start writing one your as paper well. now, girl. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the part of the reason why Chris and I haven't seen each other is because we kind of tag teamed on trips. I went with my kids in celebration of my 50th birthday which happened a long time ago now, but I'm 50 and a half. Um, But we went on a trip to Ireland and Portugal and had a blast. I mean, those of you who have 
older children who don't live near you are probably familiar with this, but you don't get to see them very often. And to see them together was such a treat for this amount of time. We were together for about 10 days. So we started off all landing the crack of dawn, like 5 a.m. in Ireland. So we walked around, and I saw two bookstores. Yeah. I saw Dubray Bookstore, which looked really cool from the outside. And I did walk around Trinity Library, which I had been in the last time I was in Ireland. We had several of our listeners were like, go to Trinity, yeah. see the Book of Kells. <laughs> I had done that with Rachel the last time we were there. Sadly, Jacob didn't get to see it. But then we swiftly got on a bus and went to the Wicklow Mountains and hiked the Wicklow Mountains for a few days. So there was only book reading going on. We did not hit any towns with bookstores or anything like that. And then the second part of the trip, we went to Portugal. And one of the places I desperately wanted to go was, pardon my pronunciation, Livraria Bertrand, which is the oldest operating bookstore in existence. It was established in 1732. So cool. And much to my surprise, it was literally around the corner from where we were staying. So that was after breakfast, our first morning in Portugal. It was our first stop. And they had, it was just a beautiful bookstore, a lot of natural light and kind of these hallways that were kind of tunnel-y with stone arches around them. And in those, they had really cool posters that were almost like part of the wall. It's Mm -hmm. hard, hard to explain, but one of them showed... Everything the bookstore has been through in its lifetime, you know, including like earthquakes and floods and all sorts of things. It was pretty cool to read. And they had quite a few books in English. All of the other bookstores I visited in Portugal had very few books in English, which I thought was really cool, Mm -hmm. actually. But we spent a lot of time in that bookstore. It was beautiful and they had really nice sidelines. And it was so fun that it was in my neighborhood. Yeah. So that was my big trip with the kids. And I have to say, I didn't get to do as much bookish stuff as I thought I would. Mm -hmm. Partly because it was, you know, we just didn't, we didn't move around as much as I thought we would. And when we did move around, it was more just hiking and exercising our bodies and not so much shopping. But that was a very cool bookstore. And then I got back. And a week later, very unexpectedly, because... My gentleman caller had the week of July 4th off. We decided to drive to upper part of Michigan, upper part of the lower peninsula of Michigan, to surprise my brother and sister-in-law and niece on their family vacation. So fun. It was so fun. I had not seen my big brother in a long time. Northern Michigan is one of my favorite places. I lived in Michigan for five years. And I got to go to Petoskey, which is where McLean and Eakin Booksellers (laughs) is located. I've been to Petoskey many times. I've been to two Booktopias in Petoskey. It was really fun to be back at that bookstore. It's one of my all-time favorites. I actually order from them quite frequently. They have a great 99-cent shipping program. Mm -hmm. If you want to support an independent bookstore, if you don't have a bookstore in your neighborhood... I highly recommend them. I can't wait to go. I'm going to have to just do a road trip up yeah. there. You know, I it was love, not I a love bad drive. Michigan. Yeah. yeah. We went through Canada both times. We went that way, and we stopped at Niagara Falls on the way out, which Jim had never been to. I think I was there as a kid. I remember pictures of myself, you know, but yeah. I don't remember being there. It was like a... 14-hour drive. Wasn't bad. I was really glad to, to go. And Petoskey's such a cool place. Petoskey, Charlevoix, Harbor Springs, that whole area right around Lake Michigan is so fun. Yeah. 
And Jim had never been to Michigan, so it was cool. super fun for him because yeah. it was on his bucket list. Lots of adventuring, lots of travel, but we haven't seen each other, which was the hard part of the travel, totally. I have to say. Yeah. But now we're back together we're back talking together. about books. Yeah. Yes. So, and I just went to a local biblio adventure on sunday i you went did i want to yeah. hear about that yeah actually let me get up and grab it see that that book caught my eye i'm so yeah. happy that you got to go yeah i was sad that you couldn't go with me but it was a joint um event at meeg's uh point nature center which is at hamanasset which is the um, state park just down the street from where we live huge beach huge and wonderful. marsh area it's a gorgeous place yeah. yeah they have a campground it's a it's a really nice place and they have a new nature center that's opened up i'm embarrassed to admit it's probably two years ago now that i have not set foot in mm. i walk by it all the time because yeah. it's the part of the beach that i like to walk and in partnership with rj julia booksellers out of madison they put on this event with bren smith the book is called Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer. It's a memoir. He said that he originally was asked by a publisher to write a cookbook hmm. because he is a kelp farmer. And kelp is, I shouldn't just say kelp, he, he does this form of farming called 3D ocean farming where they have kelp, mussels, scallops and clams all growing in different points in in saltwater farm areas and so someone approached him because his he's getting a lot of praise for different chefs that are using his food and farmers that are in partnership with him and so someone approached him to write a cookbook and it just was not going well and then finally someone said to him another publisher approached him and said well what about like eat, pray, love meets Michael Pollan of Omnivore's Dilemma, and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and he's he's got a background as like a big water fisherman. He was raised in Newfoundland, mm. so that's his background. And so he said it, that book wasn't going well either. Until finally, he said, I realized I had to treat it like a job and just wake up at five thirty every morning and write for five hours. And once he started that, he was able to get the memoir done in about six months. Cool. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons that he's in the news is because restorative ocean farming can capture CO2 emissions. Oh, very cool. Yeah. And so it's really a way to very quickly solve some of our climate crisis. Nice. And the other thing that's different about this kind of farming is it doesn't take much money to start up. It's about twenty thousand dollars to mm-hmm. start it up, and so he has an organization called Green Wave, which I will put their website in the show notes. If you go to the website, it's very informative. If you're just curious about the science behind what he's doing mm-hmm. and the different farms that he has associated with it, it's a great website. And so he's trying to kind of spread the word on, you know, let's get these farms going because it's one of the ways that we can fix some of the problems we have with contamination in the ocean and in the earth in general yeah that's great yeah and one of the other things he talked about that really struck me was they're finding that the people who are getting into this farming the most are women interesting and so when you look on his website and you look at his partner farmers the lion's share of them are women which is really cool 
And one of my biggest questions as I was reading, I read, I haven't had a chance to read the book, but I was reading about him and looking at his website the night before I went to the event, is that they're making clothing now with kelp and with algae. Isn't that cool? that's really cool. And, but one of the things I didn't really understand is who owns water, you know, because his farm is in Stony Creek, which is just the town right next to us. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, that's like, who owns the sound? I don't understand. Can I just decide tomorrow that I want to start putting kelp beds in the water right outside where I live? No. No, you, you can't. can't. <laughs> that's so, the answer. Yeah. So that's interesting to see, like, what kind of land, land slash water rights do you get for that? Right. Well, and he said that it's different state by state because yeah. some of the water is state owned. Some of it's federally owned. Some of it's county owned. So it just depends on the state. And then yeah. each state has different laws. So, for example, they have some farmers in their kind of coalition in New York that are farming. Mm -hmm. But kelp, it's not legal to grow kelp as food in New York. Mm -hmm. So all the farmers there are growing it, and I'm using air quotes, as research. They're research farms. So they have, have a political campaign, the slogan of which is, legalize the other weed. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is hilarious <laughs> because they're trying to get it legal in New York so that these farmers can get going and get busy and start producing food crops and kelp for, um, like he has a partnership with Patagonia because they're starting to make clothes out of kelp and algae. Isn't it cool? Yeah, that is so cool. I could have listened to him forever. He was very compelling. He said to me, it was really cute when, when he was signing my book, he said, I never thought I would be doing a book event. I never thought I'd have a book. Yeah. You know, and so this is a whole new world for him. But they're doing really well. Their organization is doing well. He said the hardest part is every day they get phone calls and they have to say no because they're just so busy. Yeah. You know. Wow. But I really am interested in that one a yeah. lot. Do you think you're going to read it soon? I or? am. Yeah. It's high on my cool. list. Our mutual friend Emily, who's a writer and who um, was working the event for RJ's, said she read the book in a day, could not put it down, that he's a fantastic writer, and it's really compelling. So, again, it's called Eat Like a Fish, My Adventures as a Fisherman Turned Restorative Ocean Farmer by Bren Smith. So are we moving on to upcoming Upcoming adventures? Yeah. We have Bianca Murray next week. Next, is it Wednesday? Yeah, Wednesday the 24th. She'll be at RJ Julia and Wesleyan. So looking forward to seeing her. So that's Middletown, Connecticut, 7 p.m. Come join us. Yes, please. If you're in the area. We'd love to meet you. And then RJ Julia Madison on Thursday, July 25th, Jill Abramson is going to be here, who I'd really like to hear her new book is Merchants of Truth, The Business of News, and The Fight for Facts. Hmm, that sounds good. Yeah, she's yeah. really compelling. I've read a lot about her, but I've never read her okay. book specifically. Yeah. So. Well, I don't have anything on the books because my nose is into packing boxes and whatnot. So. Yeah. I have one other one, Savoy Bookshop and Cafe, Wednesday, July 31st, Lisa Tadeo. I don't know if that's how you pronounce her last name. Her book is the book Three Women that so many people are talking about. In good ways and bad ways. Exactly. Yeah, Very controversial. Some people are saying, like, it's not living up to the hype, and others are saying it is. Yep. 
Yeah, so. and then there are some people who are saying, why did she write about three white women? She could have written about some African-American women or Native women. I mean, she could have gone in many different directions with mm-hmm. that. So I'm very curious to read it, of course, yeah. because it's so controversial. And I'm hoping that I can get to that event. How about upcoming reads? I don't know what's upcoming in my future. I do. You do? Middle March. (laughs) (laughs) I think you're going to be reading that for a while. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's good, though. You know, I'm really enjoying it. It took a little bit of time to get into the writing style because, you know, it was 19th century and, you know. But I'm really enjoying the characters. They're they're fun. They're all relatable. And Good. so many years later, you can still see yourself in these characters that were written in the 19th century, which is, you know. That's great. Making you feel connected to humanity. Yes, that's a good way of looking at it. Well, I have one upcoming read, Fleischman is in Trouble by Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Which is also another one that's getting a lot of buzz. It's a debut novel. Mm -hmm. And she's actually going to be at RJ's next week, but the day we're going to be seeing Bianca. RJ's Madison, I should say. So I will miss her, but maybe catch her at another point on her book tour. Yeah. Cool. And then before we know it, it's going to be September, and the events will be happening, and we'll be going. And And you'll be settled into your new home. Yeah. Which, if people are worried about where Chris is moving, we should say... We're moving to a new house in Guilford. Closer to me, so I'm thrilled. I'll be able to walk over or ride my bike, potentially. Yeah, Yeah, I'm so excited. Can't wait. Yes. Oh, can't wait to deal with all those wonderful clams. (laughs) Yes. There are definitely pleasures to living on the shoreline. Absolutely. Which I should mention, if people can hear the osprey in the background, they've gotten quite chatty because there's a chick in the nest. That happened this week, so that's very exciting, big news yes. in my life. And they are bringing tons of fish to those little chicks. Yes. It's so much fun to see yeah. those big birds flying around with fish in their talons. I feel for the fish, but it's, you know, cycle of life. That's I right. get it. Yeah, full circle. So we do have a little bit of bad news to share with you all. Our friend Cindy up in South Windsor is closing her bookstore the book club bookstore and more, which we've talked about a lot and we've gone to events there and it's where I have the Willa Cather book club. Let me just read what she wrote on Facebook. She said, our next chapter, our store will be closing permanently by 7:30:19. We are so thankful for our wonderful customers and authors. After five and a half years, we know that our business is events driven. Moving forward, we'll continue to offer author events and book discussions at different venues in the area. More details soon. And of course, their events are, are going through July. The Willa Cather Book Club will meet there on July 25th from 2 to 3. We'll be discussing Safira and the Slave Girl. So please join us there. And more details to come on finding a new, a new home, working with Cindy for the Willa Cather Book Club up in that area. Yeah, we've been able to, you know, we hosted one event with Cindy You've been there quite a bit for the Willa Cather Book Club, and, um, you know, she's she is great with events, so I'm really hopeful that she'll figure out a way to transition, and maybe, you know, this will be something new that we haven't seen much of, where someone does really cool literary events that doesn't really have a bookstore associated with them, and I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what she does, because I'm sad that the bookstore is closing, but I'm happy that she's figured out what works for her, and she's going to move on, and 
work, work that through. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because she does book sales for a lot of off-site events for authors. Oh, cool. And, you yeah. know, that's something that she's been doing for, for over five years. So I think it's it's cool that she is, you know, doing what's right for, for her and her business. Yeah. It's well, just, she created just such a great space. I, yeah. I really think it was the most friendly bookstore in Connecticut. Yeah. Well, yeah. and for for those of you who don't live in Connecticut, this is the bookstore. You'll see pictures of of us or people standing under this really cool book arch. Yeah. That she has right when you enter the store. So this is that's the bookstore we're talking about. And, and that's she did say in that Facebook post that you'll be able to visit the book arch in its new home. Ooh. Details coming soon about that as well. So. Oh, a little teaser. Yeah. So we'll, <laughs> well see. We we should also just say thank you publicly to Cindy as well, because she has been a great friend to the book cougars. Absolutely. Yeah. She's always telling people about our podcast and she has been selling our bags and mugs there. Yeah. So, so we'll miss the store, but we're excited to see what Cindy and her family do moving forward. Yeah. And then next up, everybody, we have a great, author interview with dual set of authors Jean P. Moore and Cheryl Sukers. Yeah, enjoy. We had a nice Skype session with them. And yeah, it was so, really fun. All right. Here we go. Hi everyone. Joining us today are two authors that Chris and I made an attempt to see back during the winter months. There was an event with the two of them at uh, I think it was, it was um, the Savoy, Savoy bookshop. Right? In Westerly, Rhode Island. Uh, Mystic, actually, it was. Mystic. Uh, yeah, so, Spank Square. Spank Square Books. Okay. We, yeah, yeah, and we, we didn't even make it out of our town. The snow was <laughs> so hard. And A lot of people didn't. <laughs> yeah, we just found out that it was actually indeed pretty much snowed out, and it wasn't just us, that really nobody got there. So we had an opportunity to have them on with us together. We have Jean P. Moore, author of Tilda's Promise, and Cheryl Sukers, author of 48 Peaks, Hiking and Healing in the White Mountains. Now, Cheryl's book is nonfiction, and Jean's book is fiction, just so everyone knows. They have also very nicely given us copies of their books as our 80th episode giveaway, yes. which we're going to choose the winner of very soon. Yeah, thank you so much. So, Jean, why don't we start with you? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your book? Okay, well, my book, uh, the main character of my novel is named Tilda. And she, when I started the book, she was actually a lot older than I am now. But I think I've, re- I think I've recently surpassed her in age. <laughs> but uh, the reason that I was drawn to the subject was that I was beginning to think about getting older. And I was beginning to see loss around me. Uh, friends losing spouses, and it led me to think about what was what the future was going to hold for me, for my friends, for all of us. That when you begin to see that the road ahead is not quite as long as the road behind. Mm-hmm. So it was it was with that in mind that I created the character who would lose her husband unexpectedly. And the subject that I wanted to pursue was finding your purpose in life when such a major part of your life has been taken from you. She had a wonderful marriage with her with her husband, and it was a devastating time for her. But it, it's, it's a story really about finding your way, about finding purpose, about renewal, 
and love ultimately. So that was uh, really what was on my mind when I started writing that book. Wonderful. Cheryl? Well, my book uh, begins as I am about to turn 48 years old, and I have just gone through a major career transition from a long and productive career in the business world to trying something I'd always wanted to do, which was to write a novel. And it was not going well. a much harder job than I ever anticipated. So to help me find a sense of success, I decided to do something very concrete and physical so that I would know, unlike writing, if I was doing well or not doing well. And I chose to go hiking. And in the process of hiking in New Hampshire, I live in Massachusetts, so it's not far to get there. I learned that there are 48 mountains, 4,000 feet or higher, and that if you hike all 48 of them, you can join the 4,000 footer club. (laughs) Sounded like success to me. So (laughs) I thought, well, this will be a goal for me. And it's ironic because I really began hiking to find a sense of success and to help myself in this new career. And the hiking turned turned out to give me a subject to write a book about, which I had no idea I would do. So um, the book really deals with a number of themes. Obviously, one of them is finding success and ultimately what is success? How do you define it? I like to say success is not a one-size-fits-all concept. And there are themes about appreciating nature and the healing aspects of being in the wild and in nature. Themes of loss, because I got breast cancer and I lost my best friend and hiking buddy to cancer also. So there are a lot of things going on during the 10-year time period it takes me to do the 48 mountains. Wow. Wow. So I'm curious if you didn't set out to write the book as you were climbing. I had a misunderstanding of that. I thought, oh, this is, you know, you set this goal and you were going to write about it as you did it. At what point in the process of tackling the 48 Peaks did you decide to write a book? It was just before my 11th mountain. And I had, it had just come to me finally, gee, why don't I marry these two passions, writing and hiking, and try to put them together and life will be so much richer that way. And it was, it truly was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Were you keeping a journal as you were when you first started? No, I had been keeping a journal for years and I kept a journal all during the cancer period of, of my life. So I had notes about that as well and about the mountains and about my friends I did most of the hiking with women friends, certainly some with my long-suffering and patient husband uh, (laughs) (laughs) and my daughter and my dog, but the majority were with women friends and just all of the complexities involved therein, either women who were close to me or women I got to know, you know, add another dimension to the book, I feel. So it's really interesting that it sounds like both of your books 
deal with the topic of grief. And Jean, I'm wondering, I read a little bit about the fact that there's quite a bit of humor sprinkled throughout your book. And that's a tricky subject when you're dealing with death and grief. And so I'm curious how you handled that as a writer. Well, I think um, one of the things that I was hoping to achieve would be that um, life throws us curves and we find our way back to life. And that even during the grieving process, there are moments where we are caught unawares by absurdity or by humor and that life continues, that it's not 24 hours a day grief. And people that are, we've all had our own experiences with grief, I'm sure, and we know that there are moments when the humorous side of things presents itself. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it can be there side by side with your grief. It isn't just one or the other. And so I, and I often tell that to people when I'm discussing the book or during um, book readings and so on, that when I describe the book to begin with, and then I say, but it's not all a downer. You know, it, <laughs> this actually is a book about life as much as it is about the grieving process. It's about life. It's about love and relationships and that life does go on side by side with grief. One doesn't supplant the other. Yeah. And it's one of the most important things, I think, when you're dealing with, you know, illness, as in your situation, Cheryl, or with death, is that we are still in the living world. And there's ways that we can try to celebrate it. And sometimes humor is definitely the best medicine, Yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think also, you know, as Jean was saying, when when you're writing a book that has you know, weighty material in it, it's really wonderful to have moments of just humor because it it lightens it and it kind of refreshes the reader's palate, I think, you know, and as you say, it's great medicine. Just laughing is wonderful medicine. Yeah. So Cheryl, once you succeeded in climbing the 48 peaks, was there a little bit of um, a letdown for you? That you know, because sometimes that can be part of success. Is what do you do after you've achieved? You know, you've accomplished what you set out to do. You know, I I used to be a management consultant, and I would find at the end of every project, which was always very intense, as was this ten year project, (laughs) um, that you know, there's there's definitely some postpartum that goes on after. But there's also, I mean, I was just so high for a couple of weeks anyway, just I couldn't believe I'd finally finished. And I was also just sad because, you know, you can't go back and do something. I mean, when you if you do something even a second time, it's not the same as the first. You can only have the first time once. So um, what I told myself and reminded myself was there are beautiful mountains and gorgeous natural places all over the world. And and I have great desires to travel and see those and, and get to know them and experience that connection to the planet and the web of life, all those wonderful healing things that I get when I hike. I mean, the one thing I have to say about the the White Mountains is it seems because these were all in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, right? Is that they seem attainable. My daughter and my son have both lived in Colorado, and they're the people that climb the Thirteeners. Is that I think that's what they're called? Fourteeners, Fourteeners, and you know, it just seems so daunting. And this, what what you set out to do, like I think there is an important part of setting yourself up for success, 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. And this does, although 48 is a lot, it does seem like, you know, an achievable height, at least. Yes. Although I will say that I've done one 14er and it was a lot easier than many of the mountains I did in the whites. Because the white mountains are much older. They're 400 million years old. And so what you've got left is basically the rocky cone that you might get to at, you know, 10,000 feet in the Rockies. Mm -hmm. So we don't have big young mountains that you can have long loopy switchbacks and great footing. We have rocky, rooty, you know, kind of knee busting trails. Yeah. And I've heard that people do use the white mountains to train for Everest and some of the really humongous mountain challenges. Absolutely. Oh, well, that tells you something then. Yeah. Now, Jean, with your book, there's beach on the cover. Does nature play a part in in your book and the healing? Yes, very definitely. Uh, Tilda has these moments of reverie when she re- remembers some of the favorite things that she and her husband Harold used to do. One of them was the beach. One of them was the point at the beach where they would go. Uh, they would go with their grandchildren, their children, with with their dog. She has many wonderful moments of reverie about the seasons, about the change in the seasons, about her garden and the flowers, about the fall, and uh, you know the smells, the sights, the sounds of all of that. As she's appreciating them again without Harold, but with that bittersweet remembrance of when he was with her as well. So again, I think one of the things that I was always trying to incorporate was that the sense of living while you're also, you know, experiencing loss. So yes, so nature is, a, is it, as Cheryl was saying in the book, it, it's a healing process. It, it adds to the healing process, definitely. She's very aware of it and in tune to it. And can you talk a little bit about the mother-daughter relationship and the relationship with the granddaughter in your book? Yes, that that was um, something. And there is some humor associated with that as well as, you know, some some very trying emotional moments. But I, I did want to have this kind of intergenerational feel to the book. Um, Tilda and her best friend Bev are 1960s women. They were both activists. And uh, Bev particularly was very involved, more so than Tilda. And now Tilda is kind of um, astounded by her daughter, Laura, who has chosen to give up on career and everything to become a helicopter mom. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Tilda calls her not a helicopter, but a hovercraft. (laughs) So (laughs) she um, she's very much a part of her daughter Tilly's life. And, you know, it has certain expectations of her. But on the other hand, Tilly and Tilda have a wonderful relationship as grandmother and granddaughter. And so sometimes uh, Tilly really gravitates toward her grandmother. And there are there's a very essential part of the book in which Tilda kind of lets her down when she needs her the most as a result of her grief. And so bringing that relationship back together again is very important in the book. Uh, And um, so that, that, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but resolution is very important in the book in terms of bringing the generations together again. That was something I really loved about your book, Jean, 
was seeing the relationship between the grandmother and granddaughter. That was so special. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, being a grandmother, you know, I am drawing on some personal experience there with uh, three granddaughters, not just one, but there's a little bit of all of them in there <laughs> to a certain extent. One of my favorite bumper stickers is, if I knew being a grandparent was so much fun, I would have done it first. Do you both have current projects you're working on with, that you're able to talk a little bit about, or is it too early? Cheryl, do you want to go? <laughs> sure. Um, I would say for me, it's too early. I'm still very involved with 48 Peaks and, you know, I'm doing lots of talks and readings and uh, I enjoy that process a lot just because of talking with people who read, which is a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful audience and especially people who are sort of interested in my book. You know, that's pretty amazing. So the only things I've been writing are uh, essays or uh, guest blogs for other things. And I'm not, I don't know, you know, I have a few things in the far back of my mind. I mean, 48 Peaks, of course, is a memoir. It did not start out that way. It started out as a um, how to hike for beginners book and morphed totally because of my writer's group that might be back in the back of my mind but i i honestly I, for a few more months i'm just gonna stay really kind of uh welded to 48 peaks great jean Yes. Um, well, I share some of the, um, you know, exact sentiments of what uh, Cheryl is saying. I've been very involved with uh, Tilda's Promise, uh, with, with book clubs and readings and, and various things that have been going on. And it's been very hard for me to de devote time to, to writing. But I have to say that in the last few months, I don't, I call it sometimes whether it's, whether it's the muse the angel or the demon in me that <laughs> says you've got to start writing again. And I have a barn in Massachusetts where I've set up a desk and it's calling me to come sit again and begin writing again. And I do have a project in mind that I've begun, I guess I could say at this point, failed attempts. But um, I do have um, another book in mind that I, I'm very, I'm getting more and more eager to get to another novel. All right. Something to look forward yeah. to. Yeah, good to hear from both of you. Thank yeah. you for sharing that. And to our listeners, we just want to let you know also that we will put all of Cheryl and Jean's contact information into the show notes so you can find book tours. You can reach out to them about possibly joining you for your book club chats about their books and things like that. So we will share all of that information with you. One more question before we go. You're both published through She Writes Press. And we're wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that press. Sure. Cheryl, do you want to start and then I'll, I'll add? Well, I chose She Writes Press because I wanted to speed up the process of getting my book to market. And um, I did not want to self-publish. So they are, um, if you imagine a spectrum from at one end there's self-publishing and at the other end there's traditional publishing um, for which you 
most of the vast majority of times need an agent. In the middle are hybrid publishers, which is what She Write Press is, so that they are like traditional publishing in that they have a distribution relationship with a a couple of major book distributors so that your books get into, you know, all the venues basically where books are sold, including online. And they screen your manuscript so they don't just accept any manuscript. They have standards. On the other hand, it's a little bit like self-publishing in that you pay for the cost of printing your books yourself and you earn the money back through royalties. You get more control over things like cover design. They have wonderful cover designers, wouldn't you say, Jean? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's, run, it's run very much like a traditional press in every regard. Uh, the, the professionalism of, for each of the stages of publishing is, is just first rate. And they've come a long way, actually. She Writes Press is in the process right now of celebrating its seventh anniversary. And um, in those seven years, it has really, really become a very professional, professionally run. This is my, I wanted Cheryl to go first so that I could add mm -hmm. that this is my second book with She Writes. So I, I obviously felt enough about their quality, the, the um, publisher is Brooke Warner, who is just doing a phenomenal job with the press and also in the whole world of independent publishing. She's created standards for she write for um, hybrid presses, making sure that that it is a and for she writes, making sure that it is a vetted press and that it goes through all of the stages of traditional publishing. And just as as Cheryl says, you underwrite the initial cost of the publication, but it has a very, very generous uh, royalties payment schedule. So that, other than, in, in differently from the traditional press, the writer keeps the the, the uh, lion's share of the royalties. So it can, it's a good deal if you can get out there as Cheryl is doing and as I am doing, uh, marketing, becoming people who, who learn how to market their books as well, making contacts and, you know, determining how you want your book to be in the world. I, don't, I think that, you know, sales is important. Not all of us are completely interested in making uh, bestsellers and making millions of dollars, but we know that sales is one way that you gauge success and that you have readers. You want people to, you write because you want to be read. And that's one way of gauging your success. So I think um, She Writes is, is fulfilling a very real niche in the, in the uh, publishing marketplace. I agree. And if I could add just one more thought, that one very unique thing that they offer is the community of writers whom they publish. So they very actively create this network or sisterhood of women writers. And, and it was through that that Jean and I met one another. I wanted to do a reading in Connecticut. And so I reached out saying, does anybody who lives in Connecticut want to do something with me? And Jean responded, and we've been friends ever since. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's that's absolutely true. The uh, and and real friendships, real friendships have developed as a result of that online community. Um, I count Cheryl as one of those friends because of that that opportunity that we had to get together. 
So it's it's really very enriching. It's a very has been a very enriching experience. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that with yeah. us. And thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us and and talk with us about your books. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Definitely. Thanks for listening to the Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.